my name is Chris Peronic, and uh, as I said earlier, I was a pastor in Connecticut for 20 years. About a year and a half ago, I took a new role, and so I work for, I'm a full-time missionary with an organization called the North American Mission Board. And so our organization's primary mission is to plant churches around the United States. Um, sounds kind of crazy to be planting churches. You're a church plant, so you kind of understand it better than most people do. Um, Connecticut, of course, has lots of churches. Um, but we're in desperate need of new churches that have a vision and a purpose and that are fulfilling what God's called them to do. Um, but as I said, I have been in ministry about 22 years. It's a second career for me. I started in uh, college. I went to the University of Connecticut, uh, earned a degree in economics, and I thought I was going to be a banker. That was kind of my goal. I wanted to make money and be a banker. And then I graduated and realized I could not get a job in banking, so I got a job in insurance, which a lot of us in Connecticut have worked in insurance somewhere along the way. And so uh, I did that for nine years, but I came to faith. I grew up in church, but I, I didn't really, you know, I kind of just went. You know, like a lot of people, you just kind of go because your parents take you. And we always went. I grew up uh, Catholic, and so um, we kind of went to the 7.30 a.m., uh, the Mass Monday mornings. So that's the speed Mass. And so... Uh, you're in and out in about 20 minutes. There's no songs. There's no message. Just get through and get out. It's because we always went to breakfast on Sunday mornings. But uh, but I grew in a house that had faith. And when I got involved in college, I had just kind of felt like I either I was going to take my faith and I was going to pursue it, or I was just going to give up and do something else with my time. And uh, I got involved in a Christian group on campus at UConn and uh, really kind of pursued my faith, understood what it meant to be a Christian. And so... Um, out of college, even though I went to work uh, in insurance, I kind of knew God was always calling me into ministry. I had this sense. I didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know where he was calling me. But I knew he had some call in my life. And uh, so my wife and I got involved in a local church. It happened to be a church plant. I'd never heard of a church plant before. didn't know what that was. I just knew it was a church that met in school. And uh, we liked the pastor. We liked the people there. We had some friends there. And so uh, we spent time in that church, and as God kind of worked in our hearts, um, that church ended up, we ended up leaving, that church ended up more or less closing, and then I got a call just kind of out of the blue one Sunday afternoon from someone saying, hey, would you ever think about coming back to that church you left? There's only about 10 people left. Could you help them kind of turn back into a church? It was just a plant, and they had gone through some issues, and my wife and I went through all the assessments and all the stuff they make you go through, and about six months later, we came on part-time, and took that church for a while, and then ended up, uh, that church ended up closing. We started a new church uh, in a new place in uh, Weathersfield, and so that's where we were for almost 11 years. And so uh, then our church planted the other river church in Glastonbury, if you know George Lynn, I know he's been here a few times. And so George was planted out of our church, and so that's how I got connected to the North American, that's a long story, isn't it? That's how I got to the North American Mission Board, and um, I realized that over all the years, I had always really been excited about church planting. And what really excited me was the churches that I was involved in and the pastors that I was involved in, the church planters. They were very passionate, passionate about their community, passionate about ministry, passionate about small groups, passionate about evangelism, passionate about all the things that really excited me in ministry. And um, we, the organization I work for, and it's kind of my perspective, we desperately need new churches even though we live in a place in New England where there's a, you know, there's just so many churches. But what I notice as I get around them, as I 
spend time with pastors and churches and i just travel because i work all over connecticut is that most of the churches and i hate to say that but it's true most of our churches kind of lost their way i mean they're nice places people go there for comfort they find peace in the traditions and maybe the rituals but there isn't a sense of we have a purpose that god's called us to something and we're doing something it's just kind of a nice place to be and so i think the result of that is our churches are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and so if you uh, look at statistics they say that only about four to six percent of the people that live in new england actually have a relationship with jesus christ so they're actually followers of jesus christ if you were just kind of asked depending upon how you ask those questions when they do surveys you get this number of around 80 percent of people in new england are christian but that's just sort of because they went to church one christmas when they were little so they know they're, they're not something else so they're christian but if you actually ask people you know about faith and, and how they practice their faith and what they believe that number goes very quickly down to four to six percent i don't know if you know this but the percentage of people who are christians in egypt is greater than the percentage of people who are actually christians in new england think about that and we have how many churches i mean there's churches in every street corner right seems like around here and so it's kind of our perspective and it's my perspective that the only way we're going to take that four to six percent and turn it into five to seven percent you know six to nine percent the only way that number is going to go up is we need people and we need churches that are passionate that are driven that have a sense of purpose a mission which god gave us a mission and when we pursue that and we go back to it that number can grow again and so that's why i get excited to work with men like your pastors because he's excited about that you know theologians look at uh, this part of the place the world that we live in and they say that we are post-christian which just means we've been christian so long we've sort of lost our way and so now we have to go all the way back and start all over again it's like we're post-christian so much we're pre-christian and so we have a lot of language and lingo but we don't really have you know we don't understand what it means to follow christ and so uh, i'm excited about that but in spite of that god's moving uh, i'm involved with about 15 church plants in the state of connecticut um, the North American Mission Board organization I work for, we plant, it's our goal to plant about 1,200 churches nationwide uh, every year. Uh, and that's a very aggressive goal, and sometimes we reach it, and sometimes we don't reach it, but that's kind of our goal. But you have to understand that in the, uh, I'm part of the Southern Baptist uh, group, and so we close about 900 churches a year. Uh, churches that just, you know, they've gotten so small they can no longer sustain themselves. And so you realize we're only kind of just keeping even, maybe just moving forward a little bit. And so uh, we have a lot of work to do. But uh, um, I'm excited about the churches that I'm working with. I have been praying for you, even though I haven't been here yet. I've been praying for you uh, every Sunday morning as well as at other times. Um, because I'm excited about what God's doing. And I'm excited about what God's doing here and what he's called you to. And so um, I'll give my little plug. Uh, one of the things we desperately need are men and women interested in ministry to pursue that, to take that step of faith and pursue ministry. And so if you've ever felt that God's put on your heart, maybe the possibility of ministry at some point, then I encourage you to talk to your pastor. I'd say talk to me, but he'll unfriend me on Facebook, so I don't want him to do that. So you talk to him, but uh, Josh is a great leader, and he's a great mentor. And so uh, I encourage you to pursue him because... The way we're going to plant churches is churches are going to plant churches. 
you know we can't just hope that they'll be some superstar out there that will drop in from nowhere and plant a church you know it's when churches like yours realize that the next community over desperately needs a church and so how can we get there and start a church there and so do you feel like god is even the slightest little bit putting that in your heart somewhere causing you to think about it then i encourage you to talk to josh and start praying about it um, because i think that's what god's going to do well i didn't come to just kind of air my commercial for what i do but uh josh asked me to preach and uh, he didn't ask me to preach for two hours uh, but if you would, and you have your Bibles, if you open up to Luke chapter 3, and what I'd like to do is look at the first part of uh, that chapter, Luke chapter 3, and uh, I want to start, we'll just read it together, and uh, then we'll talk about what that, um, what that passage has to say to us. So let me just bow our heads and let's pray as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the incredible privilege of knowing you. Of knowing, Father, that our faith isn't just rituals and it just isn't a place to go that we call church. But, Father, it's a relationship that changes our lives. And, Father, that you went to great effort and you paid a great price and a great cost so that we could have our sins forgiven and that we could walk with you and we could know you and we could have a hope that's eternal. Father, that we know that when we die as your children, we're going to spend eternity with you. That's our hope. And so, uh, Father, this morning I pray that you would just uh, open that hope up just a little bit more to us this morning. It would become a little more real to us as we take the words of uh, Luke and we think about this story. Father, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds this morning? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's read this uh, first 15 verses together. Here's what... Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain will be made low, the crooked will become straight, the rough ways made smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce fruit, God will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than you've been authorized. And some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. Now I'm going to assume, for time's sake, that most of you know who John the Baptist is. Um, and so... Um, 
and I'm going to assume some of you probably have read this story. Um, and I'm going to assume that most of you know that John's not the Messiah. In the first century, when John was coming, you have to understand those Jewish people had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah. They were patiently waiting. They were praying. They were crying out. They had been through all kinds of difficulties at the time that this is written. The Jewish people were living under the kind of the thumb of Rome. And so they had their own kind of ruling system with their high priests and all. But really, they were subject to Rome. So they were so much longing for Messiah to come, and, and they had their perspective on what the Messiah would be like. And so here comes John, this voice in the desert, calling people to repentance, calling people to be baptized. And they were thinking, this must be the Messiah. Well, John wasn't the Messiah, but he's the one who came before the Messiah. And so the reason I want us to look at this story is because I think this story has something, and it sounds like you've been talking a little bit about this, but this story has something to challenge us in our hearts and how we can be a part of this, what I say is kind of the problem in New England in that we have only about 4 to 6% of us who actually follow Jesus Christ. And I think God's calling every one of us to be a part of the solution to that problem. Um, and so, but as you read, you know, you read through the scriptures, I have to be honest, um, you know when you read through the Bible and you see story, you, know, you see passages where it's like pretty clear, where it says, do this, don't do that. Go here, go there, don't go here, do this, love your wife, all these things, you know. I, I like those passages because they're simple and they're straightforward. And it's kind of like, I, I don't have to think too much. And I need that reminder. So I'm driving here because I'm coming up from the Hartford area. And so uh, this morning. And so I'm crossing a main road and there's the three lanes on my side. And I'm in the center lane, which is the lane that goes across the road. And there's cars in the left lane to take a left and cars in the right lane to take a right. And they're kind of going. And so I just come up past these cars because they're blocking my vision the way the hill was. And there's a guy on the other side of the road going to take a left in front of me who has a red light but has ignored the red light. And he decides he's going to just kind of inch his way out. And then I see him at the last time I slam on my brakes. I need reminders that, you know, thou shalt not kill in those moments. And um, I also need to remember that I'm not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, but God's working on that with me because it's just... You know, you just out of the blue, somebody's like right in front of you and you slam on your brakes. And I'm like, okay, good illustration for this morning on my way to preach on this passage. But I need those reminders. You know, I have married for 27 years. And uh, we have, my wife and I have four kids. And so two are adults usually, um, but they are grown up. And then two are in high school. And uh, sometimes I find that my high schoolers are pretty good students, but they forget to tell me from time to time that... Uh, they forgot to study for something. And I don't know how it works here uh, or whatever town you live in, but in Weathersfield, you no longer like get a note from the teacher. You don't get grades. You don't get it. They just post it online. So unless you're like thinking about it, you go online and you go check. You know, I just we check in with them. You know, oh, do you have any tests this week? Uh, no. Which could mean yes, could mean no. I mean, they you know they don't know. And so they may take a test and do poorly, and of course they're not going to tell us that. And so we don't find out until later. So, you know, that's when that kill comes in. A uh, great reminder in those moments, too. Um, you know, it's just kind of the way it is. But sometimes passages, like you read a story like this in the Bible, and it's harder sometimes to say, well, what exactly does it mean? Like, what am I supposed to do with this passage? And so I'm saying this as a pastor for 20 years that, I, you know, you read through passages like this, and I'm going to honestly admit to you that I'm just frankly kind of sometimes lazy. 
And so I know that coming up in the next chapter is Jesus. I mean, Jesus is coming right here, chapter 4. So, you know, you read passages like this and you say, wow, that's great, interesting. Okay, where's Jesus? What am I supposed to do next, you know? And so you can be a little bit lazy sometimes when you read stories because it doesn't say do this, don't do that. And so I've known this story. I've preached the Gospel of Luke. I mean, I've read Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. But I honestly always looked at this passage in two ways. One, that it was John calling people in the first century, you know, 2,000 years ago, to take their faith seriously, because that's really what he's saying. The first century Jewish believers, for most of them, not all of them, but most of them, honestly, their faith was, it was ritual, you know, and, and their Jewish faith was kind of engaged in every part of their lives, right? It was their diet, it was their clothing, it was their... Um, their uh, holidays, everything about their life was kind of engaged in, their faith was a part of it. But for a lot of them, it was just go through the motions. It's like, okay, what do we need to do, you know, just to kind of stay on track? And they had, you know, the religious leaders kind of watching out for them. And so that was all that their faith was. And so um, when, uh, you know, you look at a passage like this, you know, it's easy to look at it and say, well, of course it's John. John is calling people, take your faith seriously. Stop just allowing your faith to be, you know, a ritual, going to synagogue, a holiday here, your clothing, your beard, whatever it is, and take your faith seriously and allow it to change your life. That's really what John's call was, and I'm saying it nicely. I mean, John was kind of an Old Testament prophet kind of guy, you know, with the, he ate bugs, you know, and he had wore wool clothes, and he, I'm sure he was not like nicely, neatly dressed, you know? So there he is calling people out, but you look at a passage and you say, well, okay, that's great. That was John calling people 2,000 years ago to take their faith seriously. I get that. That's great. Jesus was coming. Wonderful. And that's nice, and it's safe, and it's sterile, and it's for them, and it's time to get to Jesus, you know? And then I also looked at this passage, and I said, well, you know what this passage is also about? John condemning the religious leaders, right? And I've preached this before. You know, the religious leaders were, in part, maybe in large part, responsible for why people looked at their faith the way they looked at their faith, right? Because they kept adding rules and laws and regulations and all this stuff to their faith. And so, rather than just having the Ten Commandments, these leaders had put, you know, 613 laws to kind of keep them from breaking the Ten Commandments. So imagine yourself waking up in the morning and knowing that everything you do is regulated somehow by some law that you have to be careful about. You know, and so at some point, you know, you just think, here's John, and John is there in the water, and he's, you know, baptizing people, or he's baptizing people, or however he's doing that, you know. And here are the religious leaders, in my mind, I picture this, coming down to the water. And John sees the religious leaders, because the religious leaders didn't just show up like everybody else. You know, pastors today kind of dress, we all dress, we all look the same. But in the first century, they pomp and circumstance. And so I'm picturing in my mind, here are the religious leaders coming down to John. John sees them, and John, you know, gives them that prophetic finger. You know, who called you to come here? Who's calling you to be here? Why are you here? You're responsible for this mess that I now have to call people to repentance to because God's asked me to do that. And so I, I, I read this story, and I always thought, it's about them 2,000 years ago. It's about those religious leaders of which I wouldn't, I am a religious leader, but I don't consider myself like them exactly, you know. And so, let's get to Jesus. But um, a short while ago, I was reading through the New Testament, 
and i was going through a resource it's called christ chronological and it really is just it's a chronological look at the four gospels and it takes all this it takes the whole all four gospels it puts all of the story of those four gospels in order and then it takes where there's parallel accounts of the same story it just lines them up on a page side by side and so you can read through the whole new testament or excuse me the gospels that way chronologically and so i was reading through it and i had gotten to this passage and i saw something that i had never seen before in this passage that changed this passage and it took it from being a passage about them 2000 years ago that's just sort of a filler in the gap between the birth of Jesus and Jesus coming to being a story that I suddenly realized is about me and it's about you and it's actually very relevant and it really applies and it had kind of shaken my whole world and so I'm always kind of hesitant to share a passage like this but it challenged me so much I feel responsible to bring it to you this morning and here's what I saw and it comes from verse 7 um and here's what verse 7 says. Luke writes this. He then said to the crowds who came to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to come from the coming wrath? I don't know why I never noticed that before. Maybe because I focused on the other Gospels, which don't necessarily lay it out as clearly. I always looked at it and I said, well, wait a minute. John's talking to the religious leaders. John's talking to the crowds. These are people who realize there's something wrong with us. I mean, this, can you imagine Josh standing up here saying, you brood of vipers, you know, repent. You know, it's just that we don't do that anymore. Used to do that. We don't do that anymore. Uh, but, you know, John's saying to the crowds, and in that moment, I'm, I just like stopped and I said, wait a minute, that's me. John is not talking to people 2,000 years ago. He's talking to the crowd, and if I'm honest, I'm part of the crowd who sometimes lets my faith become just the going to church on Sunday mornings and, you know, intermittently doing my Bible study because I have, I mean, as a pastor for 20 years, you know, I kind of understand sometimes my Bible study became my prep for sermon son, for sermons. I always tell pastors this. I said, you have to study the Bible for yourself, and it has to touch you. It can't all be about what you're giving away to everybody else. Your faith needs to be real. But, I mean, isn't it true that sometimes that's what our faith becomes? I mean, we look at them 2,000 years ago and say, well, yeah, of course, they, you know, the Jewish, they had all these laws, they had all these rules, all these foods, all these things they had to do, the holidays. Then, you know, if we're honest and look at ourselves, isn't that kind of true of us sometimes? I mean, our faith gets reduced because we're busy. we got a lot going on. Our faith gets reduced to just going to church, maybe praying a prayer at a meal, just the basic stuff. But it's not really a life-changing radically transforming faith, which is what really God wants of us, right? He, he wants our life to be completely and totally challenged and changed by what God has done for us. And so what I realized was that this passage isn't about them, it's about me, and it's about you. John is saying to us, just like he was saying to them, where are you in the story? Are we taking our faith in such a way that it's transforming who we are, or are we just going through the motions? And then when I spent a little more time in the passage, I sort of realized that there's a very practical thing here that John talks about that we should take out of this 
that can help us understand whether our faith is really something radical transforming our entire lives or whether or not we're just kind of going through the motions and the way i'd like to suggest we can do that is to ask ourselves two questions as we read through the passage the first question is pretty basic and it's pretty simple and it sounds a little bit like we've been talking about this but it's are we telling others about our faith are we telling others about jesus is that who we are because you know as americans we're very good about taking our lives and compartmentalizing it we've got our work life we've got our home life we've got our church life we've got time with our friends we, we kind of take our whole lives and we break it into little pockets right and we don't often kind of cross you know pollinate those pockets and so it's easy for us to kind of come to church and be churchy and it's easier for us to go to work and be working if you will <laughs> and it's easier for us to be home and be mom dad you know son daughter we're kind of our own personality and we don't really kind of bring all those little pockets together and so what happens then is you know we we're passionate about our faith here but then we go to work and maybe we're not so passionate because we don't really connect the two boxes because we're good at keeping the boxes separate well the thing that i think we need to ask ourselves is that true of us do we talk about our faith when we go to work while we're home when we go somewhere with friends or neighbors or family or wherever we are is that who we are? Are we talking? Because that's what John was doing, right? John had a special calling on his life, and he was called by God to tell others about the Messiah coming. And we, frankly, know a lot more about Jesus than John knew in real time as you read the story, because John just knew that the Messiah was coming. You know, as far as we know, John had never met Jesus to this point, except for when Jesus and John were both in their mother's womb, right? The Christmas story. And Elizabeth and Mary met for the first time when they were both pregnant, and John left in his mother's womb when he came in contact and he was with Jesus. So it's kind of a cool story, really. But as far as we know, that's the only time that they ever met. So John is just telling what he knows about Jesus. And I think one of the things that makes talking to people about our faith intimidating and difficult sometimes is we kind of turn it into a theological treatise. You know, and so because we don't have all the right words and all the right answers and we don't have all the phrases in the scriptures and everything, we tend to just kind of pull back and say, well, I'm not going to say anything about Jesus. But really, we're called in the um, uh, first letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 13, 15. Peter says to us to always be ready to give account of the hope that's within us. We're always supposed to be ready. If you look into uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, uh, verses 18 through 20, what Jesus has given to all of us, not just the disciples, is something called the Great Commission. And you're probably familiar with it. I'm sure Josh has talked about it before. But the Great Commission is where Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'll just kind of translate it. All authority has been given in heaven and on earth to me. Therefore, I'm giving you a responsibility. Go and make disciples of all nations. Which is what we call the Great Commission. Right? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them. And, and Jesus gives a little more detail about that. When you actually study the passage, though, what you realize is what sometimes we turn talking to others about our faith, sharing our faith into, is not what Jesus said. Right? Peter says, always be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. Jesus says, as literally, if you retranslate it, I think in a simpler way. He says, as you go about your life, make it your habit to tell others about me. Make disciples. 
teach them about it. Help them understand about it. And that, it's, it's not like go do this as a big task that you have to kind of build up the courage and the strength to go do. It's just like make it that your, your purpose in life. That your faith is so real that you want to tell other people about your faith. It hopes that they'll come to that same faith. That, that's really the whole point of, of what Jesus is saying. And so that's the call that God's put on every single one of our lives, to go tell others about Jesus. And I think one of the questions to ask ourselves is, is our faith real enough that we're actually telling people about Jesus? We're not beating them over the head of the Bible. You know, you're not like, excuse me, can I sit down and tell you the four spiritual laws? When I went to college, that's what we did. Believe it or not, we knocked on college dorm doors, and we said, can I talk to you about Jesus and the four spiritual laws? And I think, I wonder nobody responded. I mean, that's such a weird thing, a college kid knocking on another college kid's door. But we turned it into this kind of event thing that we were doing, which was good. It was good in some ways. We need to do some of that. But it just wasn't a habit of just talking about Jesus. But that's what he's calling to. Did you know that the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples, you know what it was when he first called his disciples? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The very first thing he says to them, follow me, and by the way, I'm going to have you tell others about me. What's the last thing he says to his disciples? Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples. This was a big deal in Jesus' mind that we would may be experiencing a faith in such a way that we were actually, that we're telling people about what God's doing in our lives. And so, it's important. It's something we need to do. And John answered the call of God, are we answering the call of God? Just telling others about Jesus. And, and telling them about Jesus can be simple. It can be just inviting them to church, inviting them to a hoedown. You know, that's a first step. Some people say evangelism is like a chain, links in a chain. You don't know what link you are in the chain, but hopefully at some point, the final link takes them right to Jesus through the cross. You might be the first link, helping someone understand a little more about Jesus, or hearing about him for the first time, perhaps. We have a whole generation of people who have never gone to church. They don't know anything about Jesus, except he was some guy who lived 2,000 years ago. Right? There's a lot of stories about him. Some link in that chain. So that's, I think, the first question that this passage wants us to ask. But I think there's another question, and it comes out of verses 4 through 6, where Luke quotes from the um, uh, Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. And here's what he says in verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, this is how Luke is describing John's role. He says, He's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough way smooth. And everyone will see the salvation of God. So, let's be honest. It's 2019. You read the passage. You say, great. He's telling us about John 2,000 years ago. It's wonderful quote from the Old Testament. So what? Well, the truth is, we read it in 2019, and that's all we see. But in 2019, or excuse me, in 2,000 years ago, when Luke wrote these words, everybody who heard those words knew exactly what he was talking about. I mean, they knew he was going to the Old Testament, and he was bringing John and explaining who John was. But in that these verses, there's actually a word picture, an image, that Luke knew everybody would understand as he described what John was doing, that to be honest with you today, we don't get it at all because we're so far and distant from it. 
But it's this. It's a, a, what a picture about travel in the first century. And that's the, that's the image that would come to mind for them. And so they lived in the desert. Right? So when you went from point A to point B, it didn't matter if it was one mile, two miles, ten miles, a hundred miles, five hundred miles. You only had one way to get there. If it was on land, you walked. Right? Maybe you rode an animal if you had some means and you had a donkey or a horse. Or I don't think they really traveled on camels. Most we like to think of them as traveling on camels, but I think it was horses and donkeys. And so they traveled that way. But in the summer, it was hot and it was dusty, and it was very dangerous. You know, there weren't state police and people to protect you as you traveled or you stopped somewhere at night. You didn't stay at, you know, the Holiday Inn Express somewhere so you could have your egg frittatas and sausages for breakfast on your way and have a good morning with a cup of coffee. You just slept wherever you slept. That was it. So you traveled. And people traveled like 15 to 20 miles a day. That's as far as you could get by foot, typically, a person. So... When it was rainy, it was muddy, it was treacherous, there were hills, valleys, you know, pot, not potholes, but potholes, I guess, you know, rock holes, there was thing. I mean, it just, it was a terrible way to travel back then. Today, you and I travel, and what do we complain about? Truthfully, what do we complain about? I drive a truck, I have heated seats, right? I have a heated steering wheel. I told my, my father, I was talking the other day, I said, Dad, I am such a waste. You know, I said, I get mad, you know, you get in the car and it's cold, the steering wheel's cold now, because i got to wait for it to heat up. I'm like, what, what happens? You know what I mean? I just, this is such a strange way. I mean, if we travel more than like four hours, what do we do? We fly, right? I'm going to drive five hours to New Jersey. I'm going to fly to New Jersey. I'm going to take a train to New Jersey, right? And I'm going to sit in a plane that's 72 degrees. Some wonderful person's going to come around and ask me if I want anything to drink, if I want anything to eat, if I have to use the bathroom, I can walk to the bathroom, there's running water. I mean, we're so stinking spoiled when it comes to travel, you know? My kids, when I take them to school in the morning, my two in high school, they, uh, I just got a, 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 this truck that has the heat that works, but we had a minivan for many years where the heat would work, but it would take like 10 minutes for it to heat up, which is about the time it takes me to drive them to school. And so they complain, oh, it's so cold in the car, I hate driving the car in school, you know. And then they get out and the heat kicks on, and I have a wonderfully warm ride all the way back. And I, I don't rub it in their face or anything, but, you know, it's, it's good, it works. But in the first century, travel was hard, really difficult. And what would happen is if you were a person of importance, and think about how John starts this passage. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, he mentions all these famous people, Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, you know, his brother, Annas, and Caiaphas, all these very important, special people, that when they traveled, they had a little level of comfort that nobody else had. And it was this. They would ride on animals, they would be carried in some kind of a, you know, seat kind of a thing, and with all this pomp and circumstance, they also had people that worked for them, this was their job, slaves, servants. And their job was to go in front of this entourage traveling to prepare the way, to make sure that the path from point A to point B, no matter how far it was, was as smooth and direct and safe, and it was the best possible way for them to get from where they were going. Because they understood these people were important, they had something important that they needed to share with somebody else, and so that was their role, to go out and to prepare the way so that this person could get to that place they needed to go and the message would be brought 
or whatever it was they were doing, they would get there quickly and safely as possible. Everybody who heard this in the first century understood that's what John is doing for Jesus. And if you think about this for us, that's what we're called. Right? We're called, we have a king who has a message of salvation. We're called to make sure that that message gets from point A to point B. From Jesus to the people around us. The second question I think we need to ask ourselves is, when you think about your life, is there anything in your life that you need to deal with or address? That maybe is the pothole, the rock, the thing that might block someone from seeing, as John says, or as Luke says, the salvation of God. Not only are we called to just share Jesus with our lives, with our words, we're called to share him with our lives. The way we live tells people as much about our faith that it's real and that it's alive and that it's life-changing as the words that we say. And sometimes between here and there, you know, we don't, no one sets out to do this. We don't ever set out to say, oh, I'm going to be a miserable wretch of a human being today and I'm going to make everybody mad at me. But things happen. We get tired. We get hungry. We have issues. And things get in our way. Habits get in our way. You know, our language gets in the way. Things we do get in the way between somebody looking at us and seeing Jesus and somebody looking and just being us as we're living. And so my, I guess, plea for you this morning is this. God's called us to a faith that's real and it's life-changing. And I think one of the signs that it is, is one, are we talking about Jesus just freely, just part of our day? Can I pray for you? How are things in your life? You know, hey, I see you're struggling. You know, if you ever want to talk to somebody, you know, I got a great pastor. You maybe want to come to church. Maybe you want to come, you know, how are we telling people just as a matter of course in our life about Jesus? And are we living in such a way that people see Jesus in us? Because that's as powerful in a culture that doesn't know anything about Jesus. They see something different in you. People want you, especially if it's something good that's attractive to them. And, and that's really what I think this passage can challenge us to. It's not somebody 2,000 years ago in their story. This is our story. And if we want to see 4% become 5%, become 6%, become 7%, become 8%, become 10% Christians in New England, it's going to start right here in my heart and in your heart and in my life and in your life and in my words and in your words. That's what God has called us to. And so I want to just uh, have us bow our heads for a moment and to think just for a moment about the passage. One, when was the last time you talked to someone about the faith? You know, and again, not the big presentation, but just, can I pray for you? You know, invited them to church. Uh, did something to connect them somehow in that chain that leads them to the cross. And even as we talked this morning, is there something you right away comes up in your life, yeah, I know I gotta work on this. Is there something that you need to work on? If you need God's help, if you need a pastor's help, if you need someone to hold you accountable so that you can see God bring you to victory in that area so that it doesn't become the barrier between Jesus and that person. You know, you're not that thing that blocks them. Because God wants that in our lives. He wants our life to be radically transformed by our faith. He wants that message to go out by our words and by our very lives. And so, Father, we thank you for the incredible 
Christmas, you give us to know you and to walk with you and to call ourselves followers of you, to have our sins forgiven, to know that we'll spend eternity with you. But Father, all around us is a world that doesn't know that and has no idea that they're that hope even exists for how to find it, but they know they need it. So Father, would you allow our lives and our words to be lived in such a way, our words and spoken in such a way that you put challenge. Father God, challenge us to 